The Many Lives of Christian Dior. Episode 5. The Coronation. Christian Dior had a date with destiny. The year was 1946, and he was 41 years old. His meeting was scheduled to take place at the headquarters of the Comptoir de l'Industrie Cotonnière, where Marcel Boussac was the big boss, as well as one of the most powerful men in France. His reason for going to see him was to say no. No to taking over the house of Philippe Gaston. He had thought about it, and that house was too old. What he really wanted was to start his own couture house. And curiously, he wasn't scared about saying any of this. Shy people often have a very abrupt way of speaking. I suddenly heard myself telling him that what I really wanted to do was not to resurrect Gaston, but to create a new couture house under my own name, in a district of my own choosing. I wanted a house in which every single thing would be new, from the ambiance and the staff, down to the furniture and even the address. Christian's arguments made an impression on Marcel Boussac, especially when he explained to him the necessity of reviving the tradition of high luxury in Persian couture, which had been severely damaged by the war and the occupation. After several days of consideration, Boussac decided to finance a brand new couture house, the House of Christian Dior. On December 15, 1946, 85 candidates turned up for initial interviews at 30 Avenue Montaigne, the address of the House of Dior, two steps away from the Champs-Élysées. There were people from management, ateliers, salons, and stockrooms. There wasn't a minute to lose, for in less than two months, the house had to present its first collection. In this hive of activity buzzing with creativity, Christian prepared the designs that would make him famous. The stakes were high, Not only did he have to convince everyone that he was a great couturier, but this great couturier was also being expected to pretty much relaunch Parisian haute couture, which had been losing ground to the ready-to-wear that had emerged in the United States in recent years. While the atmosphere inside the new couture house was heating up, outside the winter was freezing, and Merle was at a low ebb. Scarcity was the order of the day, and the social climate was very tense. 1947 would prove to be a year of widespread strikes. But at Dior, the work was not slowing down. Quite the contrary, as February 12 drew ever nearer. Everything had to be ready, and everything would be ready. The big day had arrived. The guests began to ascend the grand staircase that leads to the Haute Couture Salons, where the collection would be presented at 10.30 a.m. There were flowers everywhere and the air smelled good. Major journalists had come, such as Carmel Snow from Harper's Bazaar, Bettina Ballard from American Vogue, and Michel de Bruneuf from French Vogue. There were buyers from American department stores and the senior management of Comptoir de l'Industrie Cotonnière. Unfortunately, Marcel Boussac was unable to be there. There was Christian Dior's faithful friend, Christian Bérard, known as Bébé, and a few others like Lucien Lelon, his former employer. The show began. The model Marie-Thérèse kicked off the proceedings wearing a look called polo, but she was also incredibly nervous, ended up making a mistake in her presentation, and returned to the cabin in tears. But there was no time for indulging drama, and the other girls followed each other in succession, twirling in looks that announced the rebirth of a flower woman. 
This was perfectly illustrated by Tanya, who wore the bar ensemble, consisting of an ecru jacket in natural shantung over a vast corolla-like skirt in a plain black wool. In fact, one of the two lines in the collection was called Corolle, with the other being En Huit. Of all the styles shown, Bar is the design that is still exhibited today in museums around the world to signify the new look of Christian Dior. And the new look is exactly what Carmel Snow exclaimed it to be as soon as the show had ended. It's quite a revolution, dear Christian. Your dresses have such a new look. It was indisputable. Christian was crowned a great couturier. The orders came thick and fast. Important buyers would distribute Dior fashion in the United States. And they were also clients, whether those were anonymous millionaires or Hollywood stars. Beginning with Rita Aworth, who while promoting her movie Gilda in Europe, placed an order with Dior. They would also be Marlon Dietrich, Vivian Leigh, or Laurent Bacal. I insist on using the word happiness. I believe Alphonse Daudet once wrote that he wanted his books to make him become a merchant of happiness. In my modest role of couturier, I pursue the same aim. My first creations were called names like love, tenderness, and happiness. Women have instinctively understood that I dream of making them not only more beautiful, but also happier. And that is why they have rewarded me with their patronage. The new look success was dazzling, and the collection that followed would be equally so. Christian Dior had put the focus back on seduction, which can be seen in the Corolle line that encapsulates all the trappings of femininity at the time. I wanted my dresses to be constructed, molded to the curves of the female body, so that they called attention to its shape. I gave the bust its true prominence and emphasized the hip. And in order to give the designs more presence, I lined nearly all of them with cambric or taffeta, thus reverting to an old tradition. The woman wearing them swept away everything in their path, and with it, all thoughts of coupons, restrictions, and gloom. Not everyone was seduced particularly in the United States, where some took a dim view of this unbridled luxury at the very moment where the Marshall Plan was being signed. But politics had no effect on the American woman who swooned with desire to embody the flower women. The flower women would again be in the spotlight for a second collection, also under the influence of the Corolle line. But in this one, she twirled even more extravagantly, Christian Dior thrilled the world of fashion, and the world of fashion thrilled Christian Dior. The most passionate adventures of my life have therefore been with my clothes. I am obsessed with them. They preoccupy me, they occupy me, and finally they post-occupy me, if I can risk the word. This half-vicious, half-ecstatic circle makes my life at the same time heaven and hell. Riding high on this wave of success, Christian Dior decided to accompany his fashion with perfume, teaming up with one of his childhood friends, a Granville native like him, named Serge Eftler-Louis, and thus creating Christian Dior Parfum, which resulted in the first fragrance, Miss Dior, in December 1947. I am often asked where I get my inspiration from, but I can honestly say that I do not know. Perhaps a psychoanalyst, who was also a dress designer, 
would be able to make some useful observations on the subject by comparing my successive collections with my emotions at various stages in my past life. In record time, Christian Dior laid the foundation of what was to become an empire with global ambitions. It started with the United States, where he received the Neiman Marcus Award, the fashion equivalent of an Oscar for film, in Dallas on September 9, 1947. He followed this with visits to Los Angeles, San Francisco and Chicago, before returning to New York. My two days in New York was spent in a continuous state of wonder. The electric air of the city kept me constantly on the go. It was a triumphal trip, even if he was heckled by a few demonstrators who disapproved of his fashion. They took a dim view of the peplums, long skirts and corsets. They said that what he was doing was retrograde, when what he was actually doing was pushing fashion forward. So their objections failed to get the upper end. It probably also helped that his scuddly appearance had nothing in common with the cliché of the flamboyant couturier. My own phlegmatic appearance was the best possible protection. I do not know what sort of mental image they had formed of the hated Dior. They were probably on the lookout for a pin-up boy. At any rate, I passed through the hall without question, and my solid Norman looks aroused not the faintest breath of curiosity. All the same, I was a little disappointed. Christian Dior launched collection after collection of new lines that some referred to as Dior sensations. They marked him out as a couturier who dictated fashion, a role he found a natural fit. Bonjour, Américain. Je ne suis pas le dictateur de la mode que vous pensez. Je ne peux pas dire ce que les femmes doivent porter et personne d'autre non plus. Tout ce que nous pouvons faire, c'est suggérer. And he defended his title with each new collection. Est-ce que vous connaissez le track? My dear Lise, one can paint the same picture several times. One can build the same house a hundred times. But one can never make the same dress twice in a row. There is no profession, or you could almost say art, in which the creative effort is so great. And then, after the Avenue Montaigne fashion shows, there were also trips with his models to promote his house. At the time, traveling the world was a massive undertaking. And as he realized, Christian didn't like traveling all that much. The whole process exhausted him. So he would sometimes escape to the countryside, to Millet-la-Forêt, not far from Paris, and later to the Château de la Colle Noire in the southern Var region. But his presence was obviously expected in Paris, and the incessant rhythm of collections and travels continued and even intensified. It was a rhythm that would ultimately get the better of him. During a cure at Montecatini in Italy, Christian Dior dies. On October 24, 1957, he was 52 years old. The shock was immense, for everyone at the house of Dior, of course, but far beyond. Christian Dior had taken his place in history. It marked the end of his last life, the last of several. The last one is the most famous, the one that saw him consecrated as a great couturier. But there were the others too, what didn't come with the promise of such success. This secretive man even sometimes surprised himself. And this is the sentiment he expressed in the title of his autobiography which appeared a year before his death in 1956. 
Dior by Dior. It is the moment to bring the two Christian Dior's face to face. Myself and this Siamese twin of mine to whom I owe my success. His role is to be a guardian of the public taste, and that is a valuable role indeed. Meanwhile, I can lurk in his brilliant shadow and console myself that he has left me the best part of our dual personality. I can take care of the actual work, from the idea to the dress, while he maintains a dazzling worldly front for us both. <laughs> 